Hello and welcome to Apostolic Voice. I am your host, Ryan French. Every apostolic has watched in horror as a once faithful saint of God tumbled into sin and failure. Sometimes people leave the church and still maintain a fondness for the things of God, but they're bound by sin and delusion. Some never even consider themselves sinners. Others become rabid enemies of God and righteousness, ambassadors of evil, if you will. Still others long to get back and even plan to get back, but sin reels them in over and over again. We all have friends and loved ones we grieve over because they have fallen away from God. Douglas D. White's book called The Anatomy of a Failure, a scriptural survey of why sincere souls fail God, details why this happens to good people who were once a vital part of the body of Christ. And the book serves as a gentle reminder that if we aren't careful, we too can fail God. This book lays out how to live for God successfully until we finish the race and hear well done. And you can only buy the book, The Anatomy of a Failure, at www.silsbe.org. Douglas White is the bishop of Abundant Life Tabernacle in Silsby, Texas, including several daughter works in the area. He's an itinerant traveling preacher and a highly sought-after conference speaker. And he's the author of six books, Sure Signs, You Want a Pulpit But Not a Real Ministry, Hell's Apostles, The Garments of God's Man, The Anointing of Sonship, If I Had to Do It All Over Again, and The Anatomy of a Failure. Go to RyanAFrench.com right now for a deep dive into The Anatomy of a Failure in written form if you'd like to. Stay all the way until the end of the program for a crazy fun edition of French Family Gross Good Great, where we taste test key lime pie flavored Kit Kat bars. I'll be back in 60 seconds with Bishop White. Let's go. Joined by Bishop Douglas White, a dynamic preacher of the gospel whose ministry has impacted me greatly throughout the years, we're going to discuss his newest book, The Anatomy of a Failure, a scriptural survey of why sincere souls fail God. I genuinely believe that everyone who desires to serve God should own a copy of this book. And if you've never heard Bishop White preach, uh, find the sermon from the window of the wounded. Or look up, there are no little snakes on YouTube, and you can thank me later for that. You will be blessed. Bishop, thank you, thank you, thank you for speaking with me today. I'm sincerely honored you would take the time to do so. Thank you so much, buddy. I'm honored that you'd even ask me, man. You mentioned the other day by text that you've ministered 306 times this year alone. Now, we're going to jump into the book, but... I was thinking about that. You're an involved bishop, an itinerant traveling preacher, a prolific author, 
and I know you're a dedicated family man. How do you juggle it all? Can you give us some time management tips? How how do you how do you balance all of that? And I mean that sincerely. That's not a tongue in cheek question. Well, you're kind. I uh, I don't know that I have any time management uh, advice because I'm not the greatest at time management. I I do love the kingdom of God, though, brother French. That's the difference. Yes, sir. I live for the kingdom of God. I I. Uh, 306 times last year. That includes a pastor, uh, a church in Sealsby, Texas, oversee uh, the congregation there, pastor along with my son. And then I also pastor a daughter work of ours. We have daughter work. And then I pastor a daughter work of ours. And uh, and then, of course, I've got schedules. I've got things booked out quite a ways now. Uh, I'm just always going as far as books. I've actually written in the last three years, four years, something like that. I've written six books, and uh, I, I just don't let grass grow under my feet a whole lot. It, it's not like I'm great at time management, but what I am, if anything at all, Brother French, I am extremely focused. Nothing mm. matters more to me than the kingdom of God. Nothing. Wow. And for that reason, I guess I can't find a lot of... Uh, can't find a lot of reasons to just not do some things. If I had my way, I'd, I'd start two or three more daughter works, but I'd have to put somebody in them. That's <laughs> another thing. You're talking about time management. Uh, I've traveled. I've, I've been the pastor of my church here for 34 years. Uh, the, the main church, the mother church here for 34 years. Uh, I have traveled pretty much the entire time that I've been here not to the extent as I do now. Uh, when I first came, the first couple of years, I didn't travel a whole lot. But the only way, especially when I was trying to, to build this church up, it was not then what it is now. Uh, for me to remotely be able to do outside of my city uh, what I've tried to do, I had to develop leaders. Mm. And to me, that's the biggest issue. You've got to develop leaders. If you don't develop leaders, it's going to cripple you and everything like now. If I I have to preach somewhere through the week, uh, if it's not in my daughter work or my, my the mother church, then we've got leaders who are designated. I remember one call, they find the preacher, we've got preachers on rotation, or if we feel somebody needs to, to go preach a particular message, uh, you've got to develop leaders. If I have not developed leaders, there is absolutely no way I could do what I'm doing right now. And the beauty of it is, you know, we're talking about traveling so much. That I've taught my church through the years. My ministry is not bigger than Silsby. Mm. I mean, I love Silsby, but it's kind of like the armpit of the world at times. <laughs> it's, uh, it's out in the middle of nowhere, seemingly. Uh, very small town, 6,000. I'm on the outskirts of a decent-sized town, Beaumont. But uh, honestly, my I've taught my church through the years. My ministry is not better than Salesby. It's just a little bit bigger than Salesby. And that, thankfully, thankfully, my people understand that completely. And uh, they've never tried to, uh, I, for lack of a better word, they've never tried to tight-fist my ministry at all. Oh, it's clear your church loves you, loves you dearly. Great people. 
as I read the anatomy of a failure, it became crystal clear that this book was a pastor's labor of love, a culmination of, I guess, 40 plus years of ministry, something around that. And the book really... No, that's fine. I was going to say I've been full time forty years and preached a little longer than that. So wow! And and how long have you? You said thirty two years in Silsby. Thirty four years. Oh, thirty four years. Wow. The book to me is a a loving warning to us all that if we don't Absolutely. take care of our spiritual bodies, we too can fail God and lose our salvation. And in the prologue that you entitled The Fallacies of a Failing Soul, you address something vital, which is that we can lose our salvation and fall away. I'm here in Atlanta area, kind of the Baptist capital of the world, so to speak, where yes, really no one thinks you can backslide. You once saved, always saved, and you address that. And I have felt from observation that there's a trickling of that that wants to get in our thinking, in our movement. Um, can can you push back on that for a moment and explain why you believe that someone who was once saved can be lost? Well, scripture. Yes, sir. From the front of the Bible to the back, you read of people that once had God's favor that ended up losing God's favor. It's, and it's not... Uh, it's not like God's punishing them, mistreating them. It's because they've chosen to go that route. And uh, biblically, there's scriptures left and right that deal with people that fail of the grace of God. Now, I understand the whole mentality, and, and it's not, there was a day that it was pretty much Baptist mentality. It's not, it's not, just Baptist mentality now. There's a lot of people. Right. The mentality that says a, a loving God won't send me to hell, they're exactly right. A loving God is not going to send you to hell. When you study the Word of God, you understand that right now He's a loving God. One second after you take your last breath, He is no longer a loving God. He's a, he's a, a righteous judge. Judge. And uh, the Bible says He's going to judge us according to the books. And, uh, it, it's just, it's warped the mentality. In fact, I think, Brother Finch, that it's probably done as much to damage religiosity in America as anything else is when people start uh, thinking that, uh, you know, they can do whatever, they, they can claim salvation and it won't have any effect on their life. That is mm. absolute fallacy. Yes. How you live your life. It's like I have a... Uh, a very passionate view about the anointing. I, I've had people tell me, you know, well, I read, I, I, I witnessed people. I try to win people. I've had them tell me the reason I'm sitting on this bar stool or I sit on that bar stool is because God called me to preach and I'm still anointed. And I, I don't believe that. Not for a minute. Mm. The anointing is not a gift. The anointing is an endowment according to the life you live. Mm. And if you're not willing to live that life, you're not going to be anointed. The same thing basically holds true with salvation. They say his mercy endures forever. Uh, well, his mercy does endure forever. But the fact is, as a tree falleth, so shall it lie. Mm. That's what scripture tells us. Yes. 
You said offering salvation is God's task. Maintaining that salvation is your task. I thought that was powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why you, we all know the, the way the Bible is constructed. A lot of people have no concept about truths in the Bible because they have no concept of how it's constructed. Yes. We know the church was born in the book of Acts. But all of the epistles, everything between Acts and Revelation is telling you how to remain righteous. Yes, sir. How to be saved. And and to me, it's it's that's one of the things that confused me that pushed me to write this book. How can somebody that's truly in the body of Christ not understand that? Uh, so many things in Scripture that backs up what you and I are talking about. There, there are just so many things in Scripture. Uh, I, I think I brought out the Scripture there. Uh, I think that I brought out the, the Scripture uh, that says no fountain can, is going to yield both salt water and fresh water. And fresh, yes, sir. It's impossible. It's, you can't, uh, either you're righteous or you're not. That's, to me, that's the issue that most people have, Brother French, with this doctrine. Number one, they don't know Scripture, but sadly, you've got people that have no concept of, of biblical truth. Biblical truth doesn't change according to our mind, doesn't change according to our plan. That's the only reason we've got this just the idiocy that, that feels like there's some kind of a sympathy salvation. There is no such thing as sympathy salvation. You live like the devil your whole life. I, I get tickled. I go to a lot of funerals. and You live like the devil your whole life. You go to the funeral and you're saved and you're walking around heaven with Jesus holding your hand uh-huh. right now. Well, yes, sir. It's just not reality. <laughs> it's just not. And that don't mean that I hate anybody. It don't course. mean that I don't love everybody. I love people. Trust me. I could not do what I do, Brother French, to the extent that I do it if I didn't love people. My only claim to fame, it's not my preaching, it's not my churches, it's my only claim to fame is that I love people and God honors that. Well, the ultimate love, if you truly love people and you see they're lost, there's nothing more loving that you can do than try to pull them out of the flames. Absolutely nothing. You know, I, I wanted to ask you if, if this has been your observation. I, I grew up in Pentecost, and when I was younger, and I say younger, you know, early teens, I remember a time when people still backslid and knew they were backslid. Oh, yeah. And, yep. you know, they would even say things like, I know I'm backslid, but I'm coming back, you know, things like that. But it right. se- doesn't it feel, and, and maybe this is just my area, but does it seem to you in all your travels that people are losing that more and more? It's, it's almost like no one backslides anymore. They just change churches or... or oh, absolutely. That's a strange absolutely. phenomenon, isn't it? It really is. And it's because part of that, part of that I attribute, sadly, to a lack of teaching. Mm. Uh, I, I'm very, I am a preacher by nature. I mean, I wake up ready to preach. I'm just, by nature, I'm a preacher. I love people. I love preaching people to an altar. I love seeing their lives changed, delivered. 
But the longer I live, Brother French, I've got to be honest, the longer I live, the more need I see for somebody to pick up that book, take a topic, and dig into that topic and tell those people. In fact, here in Silsby, a lot of times, I mean, I don't suggest it, and I certainly don't think that I'm, I don't think I'm brilliant, but a lot of times when me and my son uh, teach, and sometimes we even teach together, when we get done teaching the lesson, uh, I don't care what it is, any of our, the things that we in the apostolic movement are passionate about, we ask them, does anybody have any questions? Mm. Uh, and <laughs> whew, if you don't know what you're teaching, if you're not set on what you're teaching, those questions will sometimes shake you. But <laughs> it lets the people know that we have a firm belief in truth. Yes, and sir. that carries us. But you're right. A lot of people, they just, and some of it is because they don't want to live righteous. I make a statement in the book, said you can't be tares and continue to be weak. You can't be a goat, continue to be a sheep. Can't be a vessel of dishonor, continue to be a vessel of honor. It's impossible to do that. Uh, scripturally, no man can serve two masters. Yes. What happens is people, they want sin. They want, well, I say want. That kind of flies in the face of what this book is. They struggle to live for God, and they're hoping there's some uh, purgatory that they can hit that maybe God will save me from this position instead. And uh, it, it, it's heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching. It is. It's gut-wrenching. But you are exactly right. There are people whose mentality is, uh, I'll just uh, I'll step down. But it, it is deception. It is the heart of deception. And uh, sadly, the devil's really good at being the devil, Brother French. Yes. So he offers them that. I've really wrestled with asking you this question that I'm about to ask. Uh, I make the mistake sometimes as a pastor of, of looking out in a service and instead of seeing the people that are there serving God, yep. I, I see the people who aren't there who should be there. Absolutely. And it, it will grieve me to the point of, oh, I don't want to dramatize it, but I can become so grieved and it will weigh on me <laughs> so heavy that I just almost can't bear it sometimes. And I, I know that you've experienced that probably a hundredfold what I've experienced. How Can you give any advice to not even just pastors, but just good godly saints who feel that same way. How do we bear that grief? What do we, how do we handle that in our spirit? Well, you, you mentioned even saints. I've had real issues with some of my saints. Uh, I mean, Bubba, I've had them come from, I've had strippers come into the church. I've had drug addicts come into the church. I've had meth cookers come into the church. We've had, and, and people, who still truly at the core value their salvation. Those individuals, like me, Brother French, everybody thinks I was born with a Bible in my hand and that I, I, uh, you know, I started off life preaching. Brother, I was born a million miles away from God, didn't know God till I was uh, nearly an adult. And, and, but because of where I come from, 
I do know what it's like to sleep behind a dumpster. I do know what it's like mm. to have habits at 11 years of age. I know what it's like to, uh, to overdose on drugs. I know all that stuff. So to me, because I don't give my life any other options, I don't understand people that don't treat God with the same passion. I, and I've had to talk to my saints about it. I've had certain saints that just, I mean, they, they just nearly grieve themselves to death. But as a pastor, uh, you mentioned as a pastor, as a pastor, I mean, I still do it from time to time. I, I've told my son before, I'm getting ready to come out and preach, and I know I've heard from God. I know that God's got something to say. I've told him before, I don't want to come out till just a little bit before. My, my office is right behind my platform. I'll come out a little bit before I preach because I don't want to get out there and, and see the crowd and realize some people are, are not here that desperately need this message. Uh, so I've, I've, I've kind of realized what I do, and that helps me. Another thing uh, that I've done that helps me a lot in that, when I get out there and there's people that aren't there that should be there, it's not right for me to beat the thunder out of those saints that are sitting there listening to me. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, good. But, but, but I do it. I mean, I've done it. So now when I get out there and I see that's the situation, I, uh, I usually take that time to strengthen the ones that are there, try to pick them up, try to encourage the ones that are there. Uh, but I think all of us, Brother French, are guilty of getting there and seeing you know, some of the people that God, you've wept and cried for in an office, uh, but then you get out there and they're not there. It's, it, it's a challenge when you love people. It's part of the burden. Uh, like a kid. Yeah, it's like a kid that don't come home at night. You know what? You, it, we're not designed to be like that. Yeah, yeah. For those who haven't read the book yet, and you need to read it, Bishop White has identified four categories that are at the root of every backslider's eventual failure. And Bishop, you refer to them as anatomy because we're all sure. enjoined to the body of Christ. And these right. are spiritual anatomical failures or malfunctions. And the four categories, and we'll go through them, but it's feet, stomach, head, and heart. And the first chapter is feet, the instability of an unsure foundation. And I don't want to take anything away because people need to read the book for themselves, but can you describe what you mean by what is the foundation that we need and, and how do our feet need to be stable? What can we do to solidify ourselves to where we're not constantly, uh, sure. you know, bouncing around on a, on a foundation that's not sure? Absolutely. That, it goes back to what we spoke about earlier. You've got to have a sure foundation that this is truth. I'm not going to twist truth. I'm not going to try to find a different place to stand. Uh, once you understand that scripturally, this apostolic Pentecostal doctrine is an absolute necessity. Put your feet on that. But there are some people whose whose feet they're going to they're going to let those feet slip because they they're not sure. The hardest person, the most endangered person in our churches. Is that one that loves the church? They love your music. They love the passionate preaching, but they don't know why we're so passionate about truth. Why we're why. so passionate. Yeah. And if that's the case, they will never have a sure foundation, never have a sure foundation until they get their feet on a rock. 
they get their, this doctrine is immovable. Uh, in fact, I just taught here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we taught a lesson, my son and I called immovable. Mm. And we deal with the fact that truth, there, there are no substitutes for truth. There's nothing that will do what Jesus name baptism will do for you. There's nothing else. On the face of the earth, there's not a psychiatrist, there's not a psychologist, there's not a doctor that can do what receiving the Holy Ghost can do for you. There is no option to, to absolute biblical new birth truth. And uh, when we uh, finally get the people to understand that, that this is built on a rock, then suddenly they realize, I can't survive standing just anywhere. Uh, my very first convert in Sealsby, he's 80, uh, when I came here 34 years ago, I won a big old tall African-American policeman. And that was back in the days that there was a lot of racism and stuff throughout the area. Uh, I won him. And uh, he came in. I used to ride with him, ride the police car all night with him, trying to teach him oneness, trying to teach him. We <laughs> prayed him too to the Holy Ghost. But I'd ride with him. We'd try to teach him oneness. We'd try to teach him all. Finally, I baptized him. And then eventually he got the Holy Ghost. But during that time, he fell in love with truth. And he's 80, I think he's 83 uh, years old now. He comes to me, oh, I don't know, about every night that I teach something solid or I, I preach and get a little bit straight in my preaching, he'd come to me. He'll hug my neck and he'll say, Bishop, said, if you ever preach anything different, I can't stay. Wow. If you ever, I, I appreciate truth, Bishop. Said, if you ever quit preaching like that, I'm going to leave and go somewhere else. Well, usually he says he's going to go back to false doctrine, and then he just snicker when he says it, you know. <laughs> but, he, but I'm glad that I've got people that understand that. You know, Beautiful. That there is no substitute for truth. It's not None. a truth, it's the truth. Absolutely. Uh, there, There's some things uh, in there I deal with unwavering doctrinal absolutes there are some things buddy that god's opinion alone is the only opinion that matters it it it, it has nothing to do with anybody else thinks nothing to do with it. but but now i don't just deal with truth you know our our relationship with doctrine in that same chapter i deal with uh, uh non-negotiable faithfulness to god yes i do not give myself the option of being unfaithful yes i do not because I know I'm flesh. If I give myself that option, I'll be unfaithful. God has been way <laughs> too good to be for me to ever be unfaithful to him. And then, of course, I also deal with an unshakable integrity. Uh, that, sadly, sadly, is probably one of the bigger areas is people want salvation. They may even live truth. They may even try to live faithful to God for the most part. But when you have integrity that can be shaken at will, you start seeing yourself differently than God sees you. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's a serious issue. When you start seeing your life uh, some other way than how God sees you, you're setting yourself up for failure. It's, it's, it's coming. You're going to fail God. You've got to be able to keep yourself in a position um, I, I am traditionally Brother French. I mean, I can preach shouting. I can preach faith. We've seen miracles, blind eyes open, different things recently here. 
that have blown my mind, but reality, I am by and large a conviction type preacher. Yes, sir. Uh, There is a shelf life on conviction preaching. There are some people that finally say, I I don't want to hear that. I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I don't, don't tell me I'm lost. Don't, well, that's because they don't uh, have integrity. I've never let go of my integrity. Bottom line, it's there. I, I have to see myself as God sees me, or I'm not qualified to stand up, preach in a pulpit, or write a book, or, or try to witness to a soul. Can you give us but, the definition of integrity for those who might be uh, wondering what, what integrity is? Because it's not a word we hear a lot anymore. Um, no, unfortunately, no, it's not a word here. Uh, in my opinion, the best way to uh, deal with integrity, uh, integrity is realizing what you are, seeing yourself as you really are and not like you want to see yourself. Basically, real integrity is being able to see yourself through the eyes of God. How does God see me? Mm. I make the important, I make the uh, statement in this book. Talent can't make up for a lack of integrity. Right. Oratory skill can't make up for a lack of integrity. Emotional influence can't counteract a lack of integrity. Pedigree can't resolve a lack of integrity. Performance can't offset a lack of integrity. Integrity means having the ability to see yourself the way God sees you and not the way we want to be seen. Mm. So when we don't have integrity, we can put off an aura that we're one thing. That's almost textbook hypocrisy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It it is the definition of hypocrisy. You're claiming one thing. You're saying that I'm this, I'm that. uh, But you're you're less than that. Uh, It's it's like the the Church of Revelation. He said, you you have a reputation, this, that, and the other, but but remember, I'm God. I see beyond that. <laughs> I know. I know what's really going on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love this quote. And by the way, I love how you highlight some of the quotes in the book. It says, in most oh, cases you. pertaining to spiritual stability, if you let your feet provide your direction, you won't have to worry about problems your head could cause. That's so powerful. Yes, sir. And I believe it. If, if you put your feet on that kind of a foundation, doctrine, integrity, faithfulness, uh, it, it really doesn't matter, Brother French, honestly, what you go through, if you, and you'll find, uh, people will find rather as they go through this book, some, everybody I know, every backslider I know, this is where God really got my attention when I was wondering, if they're really in the body of Christ, how is it somebody who's part of the body of Christ. Yeah. yeah. How can they fail God? Mm. Well, I wrote down every backslider I could think of. And uh, finally, I got tired. I thought I'd have two or three pages. Brother, I got tired of writing. It dawned on me. I, I knew a lot of backsliders, but I went over every one of them. Every one of them, Brother French, either backslid as a result of one of these four things in the anatomy or sometimes a combination of both. But as in this case, uh, you mentioned the, the quote that says, in most cases, as it pertains to spiritual stability, if your feet provide direction, you have to worry about the problems your head can cause. In, in this instance, having a, a solid foundation stops your head from going off doing crazy stuff. And 
and, and getting wrapped up in negative thinking and, and unfaithfulness and, and such as that. I sometimes tell my church that if you will just be faithful to church, to just coming, and it yep. sounds like you're being uh, overly simplistic, but it's really true that if you'll just be faithful with attendance and just be faithful with fellowship, that can guard you from so many areas of failure oh. all by itself. And that seem, people think, oh, it's, the pastor just wants us to be there. But it's really not that. It's, no. It truly is a key to standing firm and keeping other areas from being diseased by sin. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it is immeasurable, the importance of faithfulness. I, uh, you know, our church has almost doubled in the last two, three years, something like that. Praise God. In fact, we had to shut down for the quarantine for eight weeks, and our church grew 8% during the quarantine because immediately we went online with new convert courses, discipleship classes, home Bible studies, and we had just won a bunch of uh, people involved in the drug culture they're calling us up saying, we just prayed the meth cooker through in our living room. Can we baptize him? I'm slipping off baptizing him when we're not even supposed to be there, you know. But <laughs> I, I, I don't much worry about stuff like that. But but the, the reality of life is this, Brother French. I've seen a lot more problems solved sitting in this sanctuary than I ever have sitting at home bitter about something. Yes, sir. I've seen a lot more marriages saved in a pew than I've ever seen sitting at home fussing with each other. Yes, sir. I've seen a lot more physical maladies healed in a church than I ever have seen sitting at home. Reality is God makes up the difference. And God truly is not even in the picture until your faithfulness puts him first. God can do a lot of things. He can bless, he can touch, he can heal, he can raise up. But God does very little of that until people put him first. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, all these things. But you've got to put him first. God loves first. Before the adding, he there's got to be, be the first. faithfulness. Absolutely. God lo- God honors first. I, it, it, it almost seems when you study the word of God, if you're not careful, it looks like God's egotistical because he, he tells him basically, either I'm God or I'm not God at all. Mm. Either I, either I'm your everything or I'm not going to be your anything. Well, it's not that he's egotistical. He wants to bless his people. And he knows there are some things you cannot get until you are in a place of faithfulness that refuses to be shaken. And I think we see this in our natural relationships as well in a marriage. You, oh, would, you wouldn't expect <laughs> to be able to... Uh, you know, decide I'm going to live with you sometimes and other times I'm not uh, and expect that marriage to last. But yeah. yet many people think they can approach their relationship with God uh, yeah, yeah, in a way that they know would not work in, in a marriage or in a, even a friendship. Absolutely. It's, it's incredible. You're talking, about, you're talking about faithfulness. Remember, God talked about those that, 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 became unfaithful as those that played the harlot. Yes. It's like somebody said, I want to be with you today, but I'm going to go shack up with this other guy over here uh, two or three times a week, and then I'll come back. But that doesn't work well in the natural or in the spiritual. But God, he just pulled no punches. He said, you're like one who plays the harlot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's how important 
faithfulness was to God. I think of Hosea having to marry a prostitute so that he could yeah. understand how God feels when we when we fall away and come back and fall away over and over again. I wanted to move to chapter two. This, to me, every chapter was incredible, but the one that gripped me the most was this chapter. You titled it Stomach, the Pool of an Unholy Consumption. And I really do believe just from my anecdotal experience and observations that I have seen this be the greatest cause of backsliding in people's lives is the their stomach the their appetite an appetite for unrighteousness rather than righteousness can you talk to us a little bit about that and explain what you mean by the stomach and and unholy consumption well uh, to begin with i agree with you of all the chapters this one this one seems to be uh, was the most taxing on my spirit because mm. I look back and I can see, I would venture to say, you know, I've got four different divisions here. Uh, a couple of them seem to be premier, but I, if I was to line up my backsliders uh, that I've known throughout my life, probably more of them would fit into this category than any other category. I believe when that. I speak about the stomach, uh, when you continually feed yourself, on unholy things. You continually feed yourself on questionable things. I, In fact, I brought out in the book uh, about Daniel, Daniel purpose in his heart. He wasn't going to defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, uh, nor with the wine, which he drank. He, he said, I'm not, I'm not going to consume things that are unholy. Uh, in his mind, he called it defiling himself. Yeah. If we understood, that's the reason in fact, that's the biggest reason, I think, that God spends so much time dealing with worldliness and thinking like the world and be not conformed to the world. It, because, I, well, years ago, Brother French, it's, it's bad memories for some, but I still believe it. Years ago, I caught a lot of flack because I did a, a a Bible study that they had me come do at Youth Congress, and I did it at a bunch of youth camps about the truth about the gospel rock lie, and uh, I got a lot of flack over it. Oh yes, you you did it. this. You did. I was uh, uh, Atlanta. I, well, you actually did it at Illinois, one of the Illinois camps uh, when <laughs> I was a teenager. I was there. I vividly remember this. Yeah. Well, I uh, I did it several places at their request, but. What's ironic is some of those same people that I refer to in that lesson called me, names that you would know, called me and and said, you know, I, I want, they wanted to know what I did, why I did this, that, and the other, but they would tell me. They said, you know, it was never my intention to go this far, but I kept feeding on that kind of music. I just love that kind of music. I, I don't care what it is. When you continually feed yourself on, on unholy music, feed yourself. Well, of course, now it's not just limited to television. Now we've got telephones, computers. You can get anything oh you want anywhere you want. Yeah. But when you do that, you've got to guard your heart because when you 
start consuming a lot of unholy things, it's going to show up. It's going to show up. Here, several years ago, I was dying of, uh, I don't know if you remember the time or not, been 10, 11 years ago, I had diabetes incredibly bad. Didn't have a clue yes. I had diabetes. Mm. Uh, they had given me six months to live. They ended up doing an emergency surgery that 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 saved my life. Literally, I feel better today than I did when I was 35, 40 years old. But uh, it saved my life. But it was the things that the doctor kept telling me. It's the things that you're taking into your body, even though, you know, a, a normal, healthy person wouldn't have fought that. Because I had diabetes, what I took in was killing me. I didn't even feel good. Literally, if my diabetes wasn't over seven hundred. Mm. That's insanity. Mm. But I was still. But but when he did part of the emergency surgery, he did something to my pancreas, something else. I think they said, but he took out a large percentage of my stomach, and it limited what I could take in and the sugar intake and stuff. And by doing that, it absolutely, brother. I'm talking about. It absolutely, I went off all medicine. I went off everything because I was suddenly put in a position that I could not consume just anything I wanted to consume. I, I, I couldn't consume as much of this or as much of that as I'd been accustomed to consuming. Uh, that's the very reason that God tells us, you come out from among them. Be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the Unclean. unclean. He didn't say the clean thing. He said, you touch not the unclean thing. Uh, that includes things like separation from immodesty, separation from from worldly habits, separation from worldly entertainment, separation from uh, gossip. If you feed, you watch an individual that always feeds, every church has got them. Yeah. I mean, you'll sit here and for the sake of, uh, of this podcast today we'll act like we ain't got nobody in our church like that <laughs> yes sir but reality <laughs> is we've all got somebody in our church that's a gossip right. bible said they're like leviathan yes leviathan is, is a crocodile said leviathan is gathered together you can't easily pardon asunder you get a gossip on the front row which is seldom everywhere they sit and one in the back row of the church so going to find each other yeah but i've never seen anybody that was a gossip that wasn't also a drama queen. Mm. Wasn't also messy because you feed on that stuff. Feed on it. And your spiritual body begins to manifest the trait of somebody that's feeding on something unholy. And it shows visibly. I think people don't realize it who feed on these things. They think that it's hidden, but it actually begins to manifest itself outwardly where it's visible and you can see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just wanted to point no out to our, to our listeners that you just quoted, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. That's Old Testament and New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. So for all the, sure. for all the folks out there who want to say that's just Old Testament talk, that's, uh, it is, but it's also, it's also a New Testament doctrine as well. I, Absolutely. I love this quote. You said it's impossible to live that committed to God. In other words, you won't survive on that restrictive spiritual diet. You were quoting people who are quick to tell us that, like Daniel, you, you're not going to be normal. You're not going to be healthy. I, I grew sure, up. Sure. Uh, I grew up being made fun of even by 
other apostolics, sadly, at times, because I didn't go to the movie theaters or, uh, you know, I didn't watch whatever popular movie was out at the time or something like that. I just didn't do those things. And, and even from within the church, in fact, I expected to be made fun of by non-Christians. That didn't bother me. What always hurt me the most is when people who were supposed to be a part of the body uh, yep. ostracized me for that. Um, that's exactly right. But that, that is, is exactly right. As I grew older, I, I realized that's part of it, though. It's it's part of it's part of the separation. You you have to feel that. What do you say to people who who want to have a, a godly consumption in their lives and they are trying to refrain, but they feel ostracized? How could you encourage them right now? Uh, well, this is a uh, this. For somebody who feels like they're being ostracized, realize that, that the people that God seems to use uh, the most didn't have a whole lot of camaraderie. Doesn't mean they were rude. Doesn't mean that they didn't love people. Uh, let, let, let me give you an example this way. I, uh, when God uh, brought me to this place, I began to pastor this church. I love people. Uh, I well, I'm building a church. When I had 20, 30 people, I was the best thing since peanut butter. <laughs> yes. But then when we start having revival, start praying through people left and right, having a move of God, full house, suddenly I became the Antichrist of some. Mm. Uh, and, and I've never, ever, ever, and I don't care if it goes right over the broadcast, I've never been unethical to any preacher in my life. My bishop was extremely strong about ethics. How, having said that, uh, one day a bunch of the preachers were getting ready to go off and ride horses or ride motorcycles. A group of preachers, and, and I'll never forget, it was a it was an awakening thing to me, Brother French. I thought to myself, why? I, I love people. I get along with everybody. I'm not obnoxious. I'm not obtrusive. Where, where's my buddies? Where's the people that want to I don't know if I feel sorry for myself, but it was right in the thick of when God was uh, had me preaching everywhere, and I said, "God, where, where's my buddies? Where's, where's the, the place that I fit? Where's the crowd I fit in?" Brother French, ever I heard from God, mm. God spoke to me, and He said, "With your God said, I can either give you buddies or I can give you influence." Mm. But with your kind of ministry, you won't be able to have both. Mm. And I realized in that moment, God had pretty much sentenced me to a a very lonely life. Uh, you talk about how protective and how much I've invested in my family. <laughs> my wife is, is wonderful. My son pastors the church with me. My other son, Nathaniel, is a kick-down evangelist. Yes. Much better preacher than I've ever been. Uh, my son-in-law, David Jennings, he's preaching, doing a lot of music, my daughter all over the world. But the reason I'm very close to my family and I, because I don't have a lot of buddies. I really don't have a lot of buddies because when God told me you can either have influence or you can have buddies, but you can't have both. Mm. It dawned on me. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to fit in with most crowds. I'm, and it maybe it's the conviction element that I, I it's such a strong part of my world. Maybe uh, literally, 
I've got acquaintances everywhere, Brother French. My best friend, I got I got one man that is like my best friend in the world, and that's Brother Scott Graham. Mm. He and I are very, very close. But uh, I'm very close to my family because I realize I don't fit in. Having said all of that, I said it for this reason. If you're going to live with God, for God, there's going to come a time that that you're going to have to grow accustomed to being by yourself, standing alone. Uh, I made a statement years ago. I've noticed that God most uh, God generally plunges people into loneliness who he wants to get by themselves so mm. he can whisper secrets in their ear. Mm. And, uh, and I believe that. I do believe that. I, uh, and, and really, what makes any individual successful in living for God is their ability to get with God regardless of the crowd. I don't. I don't want to take up too much of your time. This, that, and the other. Uh, I don't want to throw away a message that I thought I may preach again someday. But when I first came into the church, they told me that I had to. I needed a prayer closet. <laughs> Brother French, I was green as a gourd. I was raised around drugs, <laughs> alcohol my whole life. I was. I. I didn't know they didn't mean a literal closet. Mm. So I shoved all my clothes back to the other end of the closet. I built an altar out of wood, just scrap, two by six or two by eight, whatever. And I made it the right size to fit in one side. I put a tape player. I took cassette tapes. I had an old antique fountain pen. I dragged paper in there. I still have all those papers. Well, here a while back, I preached a message called The Rewards of a Solitary Way. I got a whole new crop of preachers coming up that, you know, they love all that stuff. And. I'm talking about how I'd listen to preaching and then I'd pray and God would speak to me and I'd write things down. But to do that, I brought out that old altar. I still had it. Brought it out. I brought out that old antique ink pen, all them old scraps of paper and journals I did, uh, all them cassette, a lot of those cassette tapes, the old nasty flat tape player. And I got to talking about the thing that made me was those, I called the message the rewards of a solitary way. The thing that made me was my ability to get alone with God. Mm. And brother, I mean, church, Powerful. church was barely over. And all of those preachers come, char- the young preachers came charging up on the platform. One of them picked up my ink pen and said, Bishop, give me this ink pen. I need this ink pen. And another one said, forget that. I want the journal. Some of them was looking at you all my preaching cassettes. And, and the day, that day cassette was a thing. Everything that I had, even my tape player, my little uh, lamp, they wanted, and I looked up, Brother French, they had everything in their hands looking at it except my altar. Mm. Finally, I I realized I was still sitting on the platform. I just got done preaching, service ended. I was sweated down. I said, boys, (laughs) it seems strange to me that you want my tapes. You want my ink pen, you want my, but none of y'all want my altar. Mm. And that's what made me what I am. It was amazing, brother, how quick the ink pen and the notes and everything was thrown down. And they all decided it was time to go pray again. Yes. Wow. Uh, you better learn how to be alone. If I have to do it all by myself, you've got to learn to be alone. And the scripture bears that out over and over again. We see. Oh, we yeah. see so many people who are alone 
doing what they can. I mean, Noah comes to mind. If whatever you have to do, you've got to sure. do it. I know I'm, I'm, we're dwelling on this chapter because it's, it's so powerful. I want to just give listeners a few quotes. You said, each of us in the land of the living has the capability of both good and evil within our being. And whether or not we know it, the nature we feed most consistently is the nature that will win the battle for our soul. I hope everyone will grab that and just put that in their spirit because that's, that's a life-changing concept and it's simple, but it's profound at the same time. And so many people miss this, and they miss out on God because of it. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, I'll, let's let's go to the head. You called this chapter head, the hindrance of an unbridled mind. What is an unbridled mind, and what do we need to do to get it under control so that we can serve the, the Lord? The amount of time that God spends dealing with a mind is, it should cause all of us to stand to attention. Uh, he tells us, gird up the loins of your mind. Yeah. He said, Let this mind be in you. Right? He, and the, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds. God, God was very, cog- very cognizant of the influence of the mind. And the reality of life is, I've had people in my church, I know God touched them. I know God forgave them. I know God changed them. I know all of that. But in their mind, they they kept hanging to the old life. Or they kept, we had a, a drug addict that came into the church, had been an addict, they said, since she was 12 years old. Life had been very rough on her. God got a hold of her. Uh, God changed her. But when she got right with God, her mindset was, well, I, I just can't quit being friends with the people I've been friends with. Well, think, sweetheart. The people you were friends with was your dealer. People you were friends with was the people that you committed crimes to, to get drug money that, that, that she had in her mind. And she came in, God filled her with the Holy Ghost, and I'm talking about God changed her world. And she'd come up. And I asked her if she's doing all right. She said, well, yeah, you know, I was talking so-and-so, and those are my friends. So you, maybe someday you'll meet. Well, I ain't got a problem with her having friends that are not in the church. But I kept telling her, dear, you, you need to be careful that you don't, you know, run to the same excessive riot, the Scripture calls it, with these guys. And so as I began to talk to her, it literally became a stronghold in her mind mm. that she would be a castaway if she didn't continue to to run around with, didn't have a lot of friends in the church per se. And uh, and I warned her, I warned her, I said, baby, you got to get that in check. Uh, you, that's the wrong mindset. You've got to think different. I quoted some of these same scriptures we just quoted. And all of a sudden I saw her coming to church and her pupils were like pin dots. And I could see she was high again. Yeah. And she yeah. hit and missed church or, one night, she steps in the back door, and to our amazement, she steps in the back door. She's only there uh, four or five feet in the back door. All of a sudden, she hits the ground growling and, and screaming and possessed, and, and, and we had to go back, cast devils out of her. But she told me when it was all said and done. Of course, that was, uh, well, it might have been right around the time I was writing this book. 
But she told me, she said, Brother White, if I hadn't got my mind under control, I could never have lived for God. Because she, she told me, she said, even though I want my heart wanted to do what was right, I couldn't stop my mind from thinking about this or thinking about another head or thinking about. Uh, so uh, the reality of life is when your mind is not, God tells us, gird up the loins of your mind. Don't, don't let your mind, that's where bitterness becomes such an issue. Uh, you get a bitterness and, and, and nothing else matters. All you see is somebody did me wrong. Somebody hurt me. And some hurts, Brother French, are legitimate hurts. Yes. I mean, everybody, righteous or not righteous, can get hurt. But, but that's what he, he goes on to tell them. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the point down strongholds. Uh, but, but then you go, he says, casting down yeah. imagination. Yeah. And every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge, knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Uh, there's so much wrapped up in that verse, brother. Most people could put their mind at ease, well at ease, if they would just rein in their mind. Uh, you've got to rein in your mind. What's the difference between a temptation and an intention? Uh, the, the difference between a what now? A, oh, a temptation, a and, temptation an and an intention. You mentioned this a few times, and I thought it was something that our listeners should hear. There's Because we're all tempted, right, from time to time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Temptation happens to every man. Uh, intention only happens when your mind has been swayed enough that I, like I said, I came out of the world when I prayed to, again, I didn't know anything about living for God, nothing about church. All I know is that dude got up there and started preaching against everything I'd ever done in my entire life. <laughs> and, uh, so when I got the Holy ghost, I was living for God, brother. I literally was living for God. I, this was around the time that, and I wasn't a preacher. This is just around the time that I was, in that closet praying and asking God to do something with me. But because I was a young person, young man, that uh, I was a young man that had come out of the world. I mean, grandparents owned a bar. I knew what it was like to live that life. Uh, because of that, I'd have these thoughts and I'd start beating myself up. I'd say, if I was really saved, I, I wouldn't have those thoughts. Mm. So I, I got so beat down thinking that I, I just wasn't saved. I, I'm not saved. I'm going to hell. I, a righteous man wouldn't have those thoughts. Buddy, I beat myself up so bad. And uh, it didn't matter how good the service. I could pray, talk in tongues to beat the band, gather up with the rest of the folks, have an absolute move of God. Before I get out the building, it was such a stronghold in my mind that I would beat myself up. <laughs> One night as I was going out the door, my bishop, Robert Johnson, he was the greatest man that ever lived. He was about five foot four tall and sometimes five foot four wide. But he, uh, <laughs> he would, he turned around. He, I towered over that man. When he talked to you, he had a crooked finger. He'd pick up that finger like he'd pointing at you, that finger would be crooked. And it would scare me to death because <laughs> the dude was, 
he had more authority than any man I ever knew in my life. The dude walked in apostolic authority. Well, he said, hey, boy, before you leave, I want to tell you something. And he walks up, and I'm looking down at him. He's staring up, got that crooked finger in my face. He said, God said to tell you that temptation is not a sin. Giving in to temptation is a sin. He said, I feel in the Holy Ghost that you're beating yourself up because you're having these temptations. He said, the devil wouldn't be a good devil if he wasn't tempting you somehow. Mm. He said, but that in no way means that you failed God. And he made the statement, this back early in my walk with God, 40 plus years ago. He said, there is a huge difference between temptation and intention. And that switch is flipped in your mind. And I believe that. Temptation comes to every individual. But what flips from a temptation to an intention is when your mind starts that uh, unrighteous thinking. Dwelling on it. Dwelling on it. Allowing it to continue. It was so important. Brother, it was so important. Uh, The Bible speaks about our thoughts 138 times. Speaks about our mind 137 times. Uh, that was a huge thing to God, and it really, really, everybody, everybody knows somebody. They could live for God and be just fine if they would overcome their mind, if they'd bridle in their mind and quit looking for offenses, and, which is another situation. Unfortunately, people look for offenses, and you know we live in a day where you've got uh, rednecks on one side, black lives matter on the other side. You've got this culture's offended. Women's are, women are offended. Uh, the homosexual community's offended. Church is offended. Everybody's against government's offended. Everybody's offended about something in this day and age by the French, but think this is not just weak people. Yeah. The Bible tells us when you study the word of God, it tells us in one chapter, there's going to be wars, rumors of wars. There's going to be pestilence or earthquakes and that. He tells all these things that are going to be happening when the Lord comes. But people think it's a whole different train of thought when God said, oh, by the way, and then shall many be offended. Offended. God said a spirit of offense is going to be one of the most effective tools that he's going to use against the end time church hell's going to use against the end time church that's why man everybody's offended i look in churches and you got people that are hurt somebody hurt their feelings and at some juncture you got to realize this is a spirit that will not let my mind be and and frankly i I, i've learned through time that those people who are constantly offended about something it's not about offense anyway brother French, it's about control. Mm. If they can control you by being offended about something, yep. they'll do it. That's why it doesn't generally get to first base in our congregation. We've had some that tried, but I've just told them, you need to understand, uh, being offended at me, being offended at something I preach, that doesn't hinder me. I don't answer to you. I answer to God. Yeah. And even if you leave here, I can be saved. But if I don't preach what God's given us to preach, if I don't deal with truth, then, you know, anyway, I don't want God offended at me. 
That's right. That's totally off subject, but well, no, <laughs> I I believe I believe that the spirit of offense, which does begin in the mind, is one of the yep. greatest challenges facing churches right now. It absolutely is. It's the spirit of it our age. Is. It's the spirit of our it age. Is. In fact, I think it is the predominant spirit of our age. That's the, I, and I realize that COVID and all that stuff's real. I understand all of that. I've lost dear friends. <clears throat> but I think one of the reasons that COVID is being so politicized, one of the reasons that COVID is being uh, so, it's become such a battleground, is it feeds into this whole offended deal. Yeah. We're all offended. We're, if they don't wear a mask, we're offended. If they do wear a mask, yep. we're offended. If they're vaccinated, we're offended. If they're not, we're offended. We, we're, everyone's just offended about something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. My dad used to always say, you know, if you look hard enough for an offense, you'll always find one. That's exactly right. That's right. One of my favorite scriptures in all the word of God is that will keep him in perfect peace. Perfect peace. His mind is stayed on him. Yes. You keep your mind right. You don't have to worry about all the offenses, all that nonsense. That's so true. I want to leave people with this chapter, with this quote. You said your mind will either assist you or assassinate you. I hope people will grab hold of that. Well, let's, let's close out with the heart. This is a great, a great chapter to end the book with the delusion of misplaced passions. What does that mean? Uh, when I deal with misplaced passions, I deal with the fact that every, it, it, this was hard for me to to realize for a lot of years when I first started off. I thought people at Baxter just quit loving God. Mm. But through time, I've met a lot of people that they'll stand and cry in the middle of Walmart for God's sake. I know I still love God. I just struggle so much. I, everybody that fails God does not fall out of love with God. That's right. In fact, I, I picked up this chapter, knew some parts of, of it. I, I ended up teaching an entire uh, series of Bible studies to my church uh, called How Not to Deal with a Struggling Saint. Mm. Just because somebody is struggling does not mean that they don't love God. Yes. Generally, they just find something they fall in love with more than God. Mm. You can love God and be more passionate about uh, your pastime. You can love God and be more passionate about an unsaved romantic interest. You can love God and be more passionate. Let's face facts. Everybody that's ever led a church has met some people. They love God or they wouldn't be there. Yeah. But they're much more passionate about their hobbies, about their pastime, about their hunting, about their fishing. Uh, and it's sad, but it's reality that you can have misplaced passion. And, and even though you love God, uh, in fact, to me, it's this chapter is one of the ultimate arenas of deception because you think, and we was talking about it when we started the podcast, we're thinking, well, God won't send somebody to hell that still loves him. It, it ain't about just loving God. It's about the delusion of having all these misplaced passions on everything else. Uh, I, I make the statement, I, I don't remember exactly where it's at in the chapter, but I make the statement that passion is a telltale sign that your heart's involved and 
without passion, it ceases to be a matter of the heart. Mm. There's a difference in weeping and passionate repentance. Yes. Same action, different heart connection. Yes. This is the part I was going to say. There's a difference in the action of worship and being caught up in passionate worship. Looks the same. Totally. There's a difference in lifeless oration and passionate preaching. Similar functions, but a different heart connection. And, and if people could ever grasp that I, I love God, but loving God is no justification for just going through the motions. Yeah, that's right. You, It's got to be your passion. I've done this. I had no family in this. I had nobody that served God in my whole family ever. Wow. I had every reason not to do it. Mother died at 11. My dad died at 15. Homeless after that for a while. I had nothing, but I want to tell you why God's honored and blessed my life through the years because I never became more passionate about anything in this life than I have about the things of God. That's why I wear myself out preaching. That's why I put so much into what I do. That's why I spend untold hours writing books and putting sermons together. It is my, if people would turn, not just their love back towards God, they love God, a bunch of people that backside and go a million miles. I could go out today, one particular man comes to mind, I could go out today and I, if, I, if I could find him, he'd be high as a kite on meth. But if I'd start talking to him, he'd weep, he'd cry, tell me how much he loves God. Mm. I don't understand why this is going on. Well, the, the reason is you're more passionate about that pipe than you are about the things of God. Mm. It kind of runs back to the faithfulness issue we talked about before. If your passions are not right, you can love God and still be a million miles away from him. Yeah, yeah. He wants to be your first love. He wants to be the primary yep. love. Without a doubt. It's amazing. That was, his, that was, we spoke earlier about God had this driving desire to be first. Uh, again, God tells him, I want you to serve me with your whole heart. Well, now, wait a minute. If you're going to serve him with your whole heart, that means it's possible to serve him with a divided heart. Mm, yes, it is. And that, that's where it becomes an issue. That's where it becomes a serious issue. So our feet, our stomach, our head, and our heart, if we can get all these things right, we can be insulated I, from the things that cause us to, that would potentially cause us to fall away from God. Every backslider I know has fallen. There may have been drugs involved, other things involved, but whatever it is, drugs, alcohol, hobbies, habits, worldly friends, unsaved romance, whatever it is, Everybody I know that has fallen, if you erase the particulars and look at the heading, it's going to be in one of these four places. It's going to be your feet. It's going to be your stomach. It's going to be your head. It's going to be your heart. If you can get all of those things focused on what really matters, then living for God would be so much easier. And that's why I took the time to write the book. I, like I said, every the other five books, Four of them was in a series, and the other one I just wrote because I got a little hacked off in a, a, a 
arrogant <laughs> young preacher one time. So, <laughs> I just, I, I, yeah, well, never mind. But anyway, uh, I got a little worked up, and I just is real pithy. It's got some issues, but this book, uh, I really felt like more. I mean, I've got, I've got pastors that have taught this to the churches. I've got pastors that have taught uh, most all of my books, except. One where I was hacked off at the preacher. <laughs> uh, uh, I've had uh, I've had him teach most all of them, but this book, the main reason I bought, I mean, I uh, wrote this book is so that people, I, I didn't do it to make money off of it. Everything I make off any of my books goes right back in to publish the next book I put out. Right. But right. the fact is, I wrote this particular book. So that if you know somebody that struggles to live for God, this is one of those things you can put in their hand and tell them you'll be able to identify with some of these things. Let, let me help you. Let me let me show you how you can overcome these things. That's the reason I wrote this book. And I'm so grateful you did. The book is The Anatomy of a Failure, a scriptural survey of why sincere souls fail God. You can go to Silsby, that's S-I-L-S-B-E-E dot org to buy the book. It's only $13. I think you should buy, oh, at least four or five copies. Give them to your friends. Give them to your family. Give them to your church members. And it'll be a blessing. Bishop, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for loving the Lord like you do and being an inspiration to us. And for all of your writing, it, it's just such an honor to have spoken with you. Thank you, buddy. You're so kind. God bless you, sir. Bless you, sir. Today we have a real treat for you. Ladies, yes. what do we have? What do we have? What do we have? We have team lime pie. Yeah. How exciting. <laughs> I have no idea. I do like Kit Kat bars. They're one of my favorites. I really love Kit Kats. And uh, I also like key lime pie. Yeah, I love key lime pie. So that's pretty cool. So uh Let's go over the rules real quick for those who are just joining us for the scores and thousands and maybe even billions of new listeners to Apostolic Voice, which you can go and follow us on Facebook and follow and rate us five stars and follow Rye right. Frenchie on Twitter. Go to iTunes, give us five stars and a very nice glowing review of greatness yes. and glory. Uh, it has to be five pair. 
uh, paragraphs long. Exactly. Exactly. Even like a sentence right. would be fine. Even two words like super great or something would you be good. You have to just spam. This podcast is amazing. That's exactly. <laughs> so we would greatly appreciate it. Um, and it would raise our budget so that we can have more than one candy bar for Gross Good Great because yes. right now we have one little, I don't even know what you call it, brick, Twix brick. It's got four, uh, Kit Kat, I'm sorry. <laughs> Twix and Kit, aren't they the same? Um, They're not the same. So, thankfully, each of us does get one little break off. And we're yeah. gonna break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. Next week, next week we're gonna have the Twix cookies and cream. Yes, just a little, really just a little taste for you to think about. Yep. Um, so the rules for those who are just joining us, it is one through three. It's of a scale of one through 10. One through three is gross. Four, five, six, seven is good. Eight, nine, and 10 is great. It's very rare for things to make it into the great category. All right. So you got to make a lot of, oh, you already opened it. Oh. <laughs> just pretend like we're opening it here. Yes. Julia, are you with us? You haven't said anything. And I have the whole French family here. Talmadge. Is here. He has the smell is good. His in his hand. It, it smells like a candle, which isn't the <laughs> The lovely Taylor is here. Hey. My beautiful wife and my lovely it. daughter Julia Lynn is here. Smell the doesn't it smell like a candle? Okay, quick. First first impressions. Talmadge's first impression is that it smells like a candle. What's your first impression without eating it? Um, it kind of smells like pie. Pie. All right, Julia, what's your first impression? Just looking, smelling. It looks Licking. delicious. It's going to be great. I mean, it's going to be great. Looks but good. Okay. Lick it one. <laughs> so my first impression is that it smells like wax and that it's green. Exactly. Which is, uh, I don't know, it's not like an appealing green. Yeah. But it does have the Kit Kat stamp on there just in case you forget what you're eating. That's very important. I often forget what I, I eat so much that I often forget. <laughs> I often forget what it is I'm putting in my mouth. And so it's nice to have a. You know, just a little <laughs> stamp there to remind me what I'm eating. So, all right, everybody, all right. are we ready? ready are we ready? Bite. Julia, are I'm you ready. ready? Here we go. So it's tough because you have to decide if you want to take a big bite or a little bite. Eat it, hurry. Right. <laughs> mm. Wow. Wow. Can <laughs> I take an eye of it? Oh, boy. All right. Wow. All right. Well, who's ready? ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, babe. What you got? Um, I, give I give that. I give it a seven. It a seven. Really? Why? Mm -hmm. It's delicious. Why, why like is it delicious? That made it good, not great. So, Tay, I love key lime pie. I love Kit Kat. But, but nothing about about it tastes like lime or key. Tomato I mean, maybe if it was a plastic key no. and a no. waxy it lime. Like key lime pie. <laughs> hey, absolutely. Julia Lynn, what do you think? Seven? How come? <laughs> well, that was a profound, profound moment. All right, I'm going to make my announcement of amazing. All right, Talmadge, what you got? That's literally a nine. That was so what? good. What? Isn't it so good? It I was? Go to the store. That's probably my new favorite candy bar. Why? What, what did you like about it? I could go to the store and look at that, and I would buy that and eat that. You would? Wow. Mm. All right, drum roll, because... 
I give it a one. That's one of the most disgusting things I've ever put in my mouth. I mean, it's what? right up there in the he, grossest he things I've gave, tasted. He literally gave me and Taylor half of it. It was so great. It just tasted like green wax with crunchy. It smelled like a candle. Like no, no, a wax like candle. Delicious. Maybe but it tasted really good. Maybe pebbles. So it for probably is made of a good tasting wax. So we had a, a wide range of opinions today, mostly because of me. <laughs> it's rare for Talmadge to like something that much. I'm surprised y'all didn't put it in the great category the way you were excited, but uh, that was nasty. It's not great. It's seven out in the great. All right, everyone, start saying your goodbyes. We have to go. So long. Farewell. Avida Sen. What? La la. Until next time, until we meet again. I pray that your tomorrows are bright. We will talk to you next week. Wait, what? Adios. Like it. I'm... I do. <laughs>